You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual It was the first email I read this morning. It was sitting there at the top of the Savage Love inbox, just waiting for me. I say this to you in love, but you will probably take offense. The world now fully accepts the gay community as a fixture within civil society. That's going to come as news to gay people all over the world, gay people in Saudi Arabia and Russia, but whatever going on. I am grateful to you for fighting against intolerance and hatred. I pray now that you hear my next words. You are leading millions to eternal damnation. Blah, blah, blah. Judgment Day approaches and eternal damnation awaits you, Savage. But there's hope. Blah, blah, blah. Because there's this Jesus Christ person. Excuse me, this Jesus Christ deity. One of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deities coughed up like hairballs by human cultures throughout the millennia. Zeus, Mars, Dangun, Shiva, Allah, Caligula, collect them all. My correspondent assumes, against all odds, that I have never heard of this Jesus Christ person or this book he provided me with the Amazon link to called The Bible. I am an American. Even if you set aside the Irish Catholic thing and the dad was a Catholic deacon thing and the mom was a Catholic lay minister thing and I went to a seminary for high school thing and the baptism thing and the first communion and confirmation things – even if I grew up Baha'i or Zoroastrian on the north side of Chicago, it isn't possible to be in this country for five minutes without having heard someone or many hundreds or thousands of someone's yammer on about this Jesus Christ person and the Bible. You can't live here. You can't grow up here and not be familiar with this dude. I pray you had the courage to read this. If you are offended, please open your heart and invite God in. To my correspondent, I wasn't offended by your God-bothering email this morning or the reference to the Bible, which I've read, because I'm not just familiar with your religion. I'm immune. I was exposed to what turned out to be a non-fatal dose in childhood, and while I got some lovely parting gifts in the form of hang-ups, hang-ups transformed into kinks by my erotic imagination, which is why I now regard them as parting gifts, my psychic immune system isn't going to collapse in the face of an email from a stranger. Only one thing bothered me about your email this morning, the timing of it. Last week, a grand jury in Pennsylvania released a 1,300-page report detailing the sexual abuse of more than 1,000 children by more than 300 Catholic priests over 70 years. At every step, the abuse was covered up, enabled, and in some cases, directly facilitated by the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals, the so-called princes of the church. couple examples. There was a ring of predatory priests in Pittsburgh that groomed and raped teenage boys, boys they gave crosses to, gold crosses to, distinctive gold crosses that they encouraged these boys to wear. In the report, the grand jury says that the crosses were a designation that these children were victims of sexual abuse, a signal to other predatory priests that these boys had been desensitized to sexual abuse and were optimal targets for further victimization. A cross. And it wasn't just boys who were preyed on. A priest in Scranton, Father Thomas Skotek, raped a minor, a girl, and got her pregnant and then took her to get an abortion. Bishop James C. Timlin, then head of the diocese, 
sent the victim a letter. This is a very difficult time in your life, and I realize how upset you are. I, too, share your grief. Please be assured that I am most willing to do whatever I can to help. To be clear, Bishop Timlin sent that letter not to the teenage girl that Father Skotek raped, but to Father Skotek. In the eyes of Bishop Timlin, Father Skotek, the rapist, was the victim here. <sighs> the church is reeling. The Pope is having to weigh in. This has been going on for the better part of two and a half decades, these revelations about really the Catholic Church being child rape incorporated. And it's important to remember as we read this grand jury report out of Pennsylvania, this is not the result of a nationwide investigation like the ones conducted in Australia and Ireland. This is six dioceses or diocese, whatever the plural of diocese is, out of the 140 dioceses in the United States. There are more cases out there, tens of thousands more cases out there, more predatory priests and more bishops, archbishops and cardinals with the blood of children on their hands. So yeah, maybe now isn't the right time to come at me or to come at anyone about religion and accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior being the path to moral righteousness here on earth and salvation up there in heaven. There are evangelicals out there tutting about the crisis in the Catholic Church, all those predatory priests, as if this isn't a problem in evangelical churches and evangelical communities. There is a long list of evangelical pastors who've been taken out by revelations of sexual misconduct. The Me Too movement has also impacted evangelical churches. And you know what? Not a day goes by without a youth pastor being arrested for child rape or on child porn possession charges or both. In Matthew 7, 3, 5, Jesus said to someone, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Except in this case, it's planks in everybody's eyes. A lot of people in the wake of the Pennsylvania report, which comes in the wake of reports going back two and a half decades, are saying that the church, to reform itself, to make it a safer place for children, needs to end celibacy and needs to allow priests to marry and needs to allow women to serve. I'm for all that. I would point out, though, that children are being raped every day in evangelical churches where priests don't have to be celibate, where priests can marry, and where women are allowed to be pastors. So this isn't a cure-all. And in fairness, children have been raped by teachers, by police officers, by cops, by firemen. But there's this thing that happens when someone is wearing a collar, when someone is a pastor, when someone hangs a shingle and opens up their own goddamn little mega church, disorganized religion, as my mother called it. And that's people lower their guard. People assume this person can be trusted because they are a man or a woman of God. And people continue to make that assumption and continue to place their trust in these self-appointed spokespersons for God, these God botherers. When they shouldn't, obviously, look at the news. Look at the news out of Pennsylvania. Google youth pastor and arrest and see what pops up in your community. We need to reform the church. We need to reform our religious communities. We need to reform our culture sexually in so many ways. And in the meantime, while we work on all of that, let's not be credulous marks, shall we? As I like to say each and every time I tweet out a new youth pastor watch, if kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers and priests, it would be illegal to take your kids to the circus.
maybe while the Catholic Church is working on this, and maybe while the evangelical churches and communities are working on this, we should all stop taking our kids to the circus. Coming up today on the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long and no ads. Joining us this week on the Magnum, Dr. Lori Brodo, here to discuss her new book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Coming up, all that on today's show. Hey, Dan. Uh, calling from the West Coast. White, heterosexual, cis male. Um, I've got a question about my girlfriend. We, um, we're currently in round two. I've been dating for about three months this time and three months that time. Uh, we broke up because I had just gotten out of a long-term relationship, and she had dealt with some very severe, uh, a tragic death in um, her personal circle, and basically it was too much for both of us. Took some time off, got back together, and essentially, um, I'm a you know fairly sensitive uh, guy. She, while you know is sensitive and has emotions, of course, uh, has a harder time articulating them, and I guess our standard for quality time is, is very different. Um, I really care about this girl. I told her I loved her. Um, she actually did not reciprocate, but, um, you know, she said she really cared about me. And, and basically, when we spend time together, she always wants to do things in groups of people, but we don't seem to really connect with groups of people. Like, we don't really talk very much. She's talking to everybody else. And then she's like, we just spent an entire day together. I have other things to do. I don't want to spend any more time with you makes you feel like we're not really connecting. And she feels like, I think at least, she feels like I'm smothering her, whereas I feel like we're not spending enough time together. I really don't want to see this relationship break down, but I just don't know how to fix everything because of our slightly different personalities. She doesn't want to spend time with you alone. When she is with you, with other people, she doesn't talk to you. And when you said I love you, she didn't say I love you back. That's not necessarily a problem. Not everyone's ready to say I love you at the same time. But lumped in with those other two issues, doesn't really make time for you alone, doesn't really make time for you when you're together with other people. I'd say that this relationship is pretty broke down, whether you want it to break down or not. And your feeling, this feeling that you aren't connecting is not irrational. You aren't connecting. I think that you should be off again with this girl. You should tell her, obviously, we got back together a little too soon, maybe, or we're not right for each other, but something's not working here. So rather than chase you around at parties and ask you for more than you're willing to or able to give me right now, let's just be friends. Let's just be chill and put it in the offsetting. And if you want to date other people, please go date other people. If I'm going to date other people. If when you're ready to be with me in the way that I need someone to be with me when I'm with that person, perhaps we can pick it back up and, and, and be on again. But right now, it's off. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 30-year-old woman living in New York City. I have a question about dating in, in New York specifically. I have struggled with my weight for basically my entire life since I was a teenager. Um, I've been everything from like a double zero to a 22, literally every size in between. And I've dated people at all sizes, um, although when I was heavier, um, my boyfriends would make sort of comments to me that were, weren't so nice, would encourage me to lose weight, whatever. Um, but at this point, I'm literally in a middle ground. I'm 
I'm at what I think is a healthy size and weight for me specifically, not to say anything about where anyone else should be. Um, but I still feel really insecure about dating in New York because the women are so thin and so beautiful. And I feel like even when I think that someone might be interested in me or if I'm out with my friends, they're like, oh, that guy's looking at you or whatever. I, I can't take it seriously because I feel like how could a man be attracted to me when there's so many beautiful women in New York? So I just, I just don't know what to do about that. I I just, I have a, tr- a lot of trouble dating because I don't feel like anyone could ever look at me and be into me. Another related question, I guess, is if I ever were to be with someone again, I do have a lot of stretch marks on my legs, on my stomach, on my arms, on my breasts, because my weight has fluctuated so much throughout my entire life, and that's embarrassing to me. Any help would be really, really appreciated. I don't know if I, if this is like a get thee to a therapist situation, or if I'm being a baby and I should just go online and be really open about my weight. I don't know what to do. First, glad you're feeling good about your size and weight, and I would encourage you to not waste any more time on a boyfriend who, quote-unquote, encourages you to lose weight. You should put it down as a marker at the beginning of a relationship that any sort of encouragement like that is a deal-breaker for you and a relationship terminator. Your call kind of reminds me, your question kind of reminds me of calls and questions I get from gay guys in places like New York or anywhere who say that no one could ever possibly look at them and be interested in them because they're not ripped, because they don't have abs, because they don't look like models. And they will say, you know, everyone, everyone here is thin and beautiful or muscular and beautiful and a gym queen. And it's just not fucking true. I was just in New York for a couple of weeks and there are women of all shapes and sizes in New York City. I see them everywhere I go. So if all you're seeing is incredibly thin women, that's all you're looking at, which is what I often find myself telling guys, gay guys, who complain that no one could ever possibly want them because all the gay men they see in the media, all the gay men that they see out in the bars or running around are ripped jocks with abs. And my reply to them is always, that's all you're looking at. Because I look around and I see all different types of gay men. I also see different types of gay men, all different types of gay men being pursued by all different types of gay men. Guys who look at you in bars when you're out with your friends, guys who might flirt with you, take the yes for an answer. There are guys out there who are attracted to skinny bitches. There are guys out there who are attracted to bigger women. And there are guys out there who are going to be attracted to you at the size you are. And I think that the confidence that you're projecting until that disconnect, until the circuit breaker kicks in, that confidence that you're probably projecting now because you feel good about the size you are and the weight you are at the moment is attracting attention from guys who are into your type, but also attracted to women who project that kind of confidence. It's just the minute you're conscious of some guy's interest, you look around and you single out, you, you pick out the skinny bitches in the room and you think I'm not one of them. Couldn't possibly interested in me because all women in New York are them. And that's not true. And your presence in New York is proof that that is not true. And if you look around a little bit, just like the gay guys who say all gay men, at the bars or who are out, who are desirable, have abs and are ripped. If you look around a little bit, you'll see other women who look like you on dates. You'll see other women who look like you 
sitting in sidewalk cafes with their partners having dinner or lunch. Open your eyes and look around. As for the stretch marks, everybody's got their scars. Everyone's got their issues. Everyone's got their insecurities about their bodies. Some folks like to have sex in the dark. I'm one of those folks. I like the lights off and the windows closed. Some people like to leave a little bit of clothing on when they're having sex. For some guys, stretch marks are going to be an issue. And some guys might be attracted to you despite them. But some guys might be attracted to you regardless. It might not be an issue for them at all. But you can't find either set of those guys. The guys who are so into you that the stretch marks aren't an issue. Or the guys who are attracted to you and they don't even see the stretch marks if you aren't willing to get with guys because you're so insecure. Because although comfortable at the size and weight you are now, the only women that you are clocking and looking at are the skinny bitches who aren't the only women in New York. You're a woman in New York. You aren't a skinny bitch. You are proof all by yourself that what you said at the top of the call, top of your question, isn't true. Might help to unpack these issues with a therapist who can help build up your confidence make you feel better about yourself and knock down this kind of irrational self-undermining thinking that you're engaged in. So I would recommend that. Talking about this at greater length with a therapist is a good idea. And a quick PS, there are guys out there who are into women of all sizes, but a lot of guys who are into bigger women are insecure about that because they worry about what their friends are going to think because they're all supposed to want the same sort of idealized skinny bitch girlfriend. And so the guy in the bar who flirts with you, who makes eyes with you, who's trying to pick you up, he's confident in his desire and his attraction to women of different sizes or women of your particular shape and size. And you should let his confidence, that guy's confidence in his own taste and his desire for you attract you in the same way your confidence attracted him. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. Um, I'm a woman, 30 years old, living in the Midwest. I recently met a man on FetLife about a month or and a half ago, and he presented himself as everything that I wanted. A spanking fetishist who was into social justice and just everything I wanted in a man. And um, after seeing him for a while, not that long, obviously, it was a month and a half ago, um, we had sex and he thanked me and it was really great. And then I found out that he had been lying to me about basically everything. He's a married man who's a lead pastor at a conservative church. Like, so everything he said about social justice, everything he said about like this future that he wanted to have with me, it was all just bullshit. And I'm feeling very violated. There's part of me that just wants to like, let go of the resentment, move on, and let him fuck up his own life. Because I, I don't want to do anything out of resentment or spite. But there's also part of me that's like, if he's dangerous, is it my responsibility to say something? Do I need to out this man? He's a lead pastor. He has control. And yeah, he lied to me about so much and took something that wasn't his to take without consent. So yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. All right, I'm looking at the website for this particular, looks like a mini mega church out in the boonies somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at a picture of the lead pastor. And this is the guy who spanked you, who convinced you he was a social justice warrior. Because in reading about this church, 
There's not a lot of social justicey shit going on at this church. It looks like you're off yeah. the shelf, evangelical, conservative, Trump supporting, anti gay marriage, anti abortion, anti women's rights kind of Jesus shop. Mm-hmm. Even offered to go with me to a Bernie Sanders rally. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you take him there? I think you should have uh, taken him up in that offer just in, you know, so he'd be photographed yeah. at the Bernie Sanders rally and have to explain that to people. He ended up spanking me and having sex with me that night instead. And how did the relationship end? Um, I sent him a picture of him on the website and I said, so you're married <laughs> via text message. And mm-hmm. then he like, he was like, oh, this would inevitably happen. And I basically sent him an article on rape by deception and said, what would Jesus do about that? Oh, good um, for you. <laughs> you don't need my advice. Yeah. You're, you're killing it. But, but your question is, should you out him or should you not out him? Yeah, I'm getting my master's in social work right now. I want to be a sex therapist. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if it's like ethically an imperative for me to say something because I'm also of the mind where it's like, I don't I don't know if that's good for his kids or his family either, you know? Well, you don't want to make the leap from, you know, lie to someone to get into their pants to molesting their own children or endangering their own children. I think that's a that's a that's a broad No, job. I mean the other side. The other side. If I out him, that would be hard on his family. Oh but yeah, I mean, that would be kids, you would have to deal with the repercussions about that. That's that's absolutely yeah. correct. You would be blowing up this man's family and and also blowing up his professional exactly. life. My my concern and, and you know this is you know I'm a Libra and I believe not in uh astrology at all, but <laughs> for the sake of the metaphor, like I'm a Libra here, and I'm putting some stuff on one side of the scales and some stuff on the other side of the scales, and definitely on one side is blowing up this man's family and potentially traumatizing his children and impoverishing his family. Because reading about his, mm-hmm. uh, I'm re- looking at his bio right now. He spent the last ten, fifteen years really uh, buying into all of this and getting master's degrees and PhDs and Jesus stuff. Uh, and you know, he'd have to go be a used car salesman or something because he's not qualified to do anything else at this point. He also does it work. Oddly enough, he also has a job in it right now. Hmm. But on the other side of the scales, like there are a lot of creepy pastors out there who are in a position to yeah. take advantage of vulnerable parishioners who people who come to them yeah. for counsel and, and moral guidance and leadership. And, you know, you, you, do, you can pick up any newspaper in the country, in any city, any state, and read stories about people abusing that kind of authority and hocus pocus, where, where you know, people believe that this they're talking to someone who exists on a kind of higher moral plane, and they can trust this person not to take advantage of them, so people lower their guard around this person. And that makes it possible for that person, often ordained person, to abuse or exploit them sexually. And that mm-hmm. that goes into the like out the motherfucker side of the ledger. There have been cases where you know pastors of churches have been outed and, and you know sexual sin that they have committed uh, has been addressed and where they've given tearful you know apologies about sinning and you know we're all sinners we're all fallen and then been embraced by their congregation and the woman who brought the complaint has been ostracized by the congregation. You're not a member of the congregation. Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to worry about that potential repercussion. Um, in, in, in dinking around on this church's website for a bit, uh, most churches of this sort have kind of a 
kind of a board of directors, uh, you know, people who are empowered to oversee the pastor, people who hired the pastor and are there to, you know, create some accountability for the pastor. And you could private, you know, particularly if you have screen grabs of your conversations and you can prove that this happened and prove how you met and many pictures that he sent you, you could communicate to them privately about your experience with this mm-hmm. guy. And they may circle the wagons mm-hmm. and they may protect him and they may hush it up. But that might inspire him, that near professional and personal death experience, to knock this shit off. Or it may mm-hmm. result in them frog marching him out of their Jesus shop once and for all. Yeah, yeah, fuck. I, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't know what to do here. Because just like you, I bump on mm-hmm. those two. I bump on the kids, the, the kids that he has, the kids that he talks about in his sermons, which I have now read. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm trying to set aside my desire for vengeance myself when I, you know, see the things that he said and written about uh, people who are like me, who are parents. Mm-hmm. Who he doesn't think should be parents and he doesn't think should be married oh, no. to their partners. I didn't read that. Um, I, I'm, inf- I'm inferring that from the, the church's statement of oh, beliefs, you're actually. Oh, Okay, that you know, would make sense. God-ordained yeah. marriage, one man, one woman, that's the only kind that's okay. Ugh. And it's not one man, one woman, and then other women you spank on the side and lie to in order to get into their <laughs> pants and get your hand on their bums and get your dick up them. That's not... That's not okay. With- yeah, he was talking long term too. He was talking like marriage and like all these things he thought us doing together. It was he was it was bad. <laughs> yep, I'm you know my I, I'm going to come down on the side of out the guy, but but ultimately it's your decision to make. Um, it, it'll for suck sure. for his kids, suck for his wife, but let's say you do nothing except you confronted him privately and personally by pointing out that rape by deception is a thing uh, and uh, an infraction that mm-hmm. he himself committed when he lied to you in order to obtain your consent or to false pretenses. If he's doing that, this, I, this doesn't, he sounds so slick and smooth. This isn't the first time he's done that, done this to someone. I doubt it. And he's going to continue to do this to other women. And the more he gets away yeah. with this kind of exploitation and abuse, the more women he's going to exploit and abuse and the worse it's probably going to get over time. And I don't trust someone in this kind of position of moral authority where it inspires so many gullible people to lower their guards, despite all the newspaper stories and news articles and and media reports about rapey priests and pastors. I don't trust him not to begin taking advantage of his own parishioners and his parishioners being vulnerable to him because of that. Yeah, that's my fear. And so find out who the board of governors are, go to the website, dig around, find out who the accountability team is for the pastor at this little Jesus shop and send them an email, include a bunch of screen grabs and tell them that you want to hear back from them about what was done and that you're reaching out to them privately because you're concerned for this man's kids. So maybe if they handle this in an ethical, responsible way, you won't take it to the media. (laughs) But demand yeah. demand to be informed about what they do, mm-hmm. what they what, what steps they take to hold this guy accountable and to get him to knock yep. this shit the fuck off. All that said, do you fear this guy? A little bit. <laughs> 
Because I have no idea who he actually is. Do you know? Where, does he know where you live? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He knows where I live. He knows where I work. He knows where I go to school. Something you need to factor into the decision and choice that you're about to make, which is your own safety. Yeah. Because what if he does retaliate? Or what if you communicate to them privately, they try to hush it up or handle it privately, and he shows up at your place? Yeah. To try to put an end to this himself. Ugh. Yeah, that's the, to, to cover the it worst up. of all possible narratives. Yeah. I've had that thought, though. Something to think about. Yeah. And you can yeah. hold him accountable. You can out him. You can go to the media. If you have any concerns about your physical safety when you decide to do that, maybe stay at mom and dad's for a month. Maybe not be where he thinks you could be. Right. And you have secrets perhaps on the line here too, depending on how out you are about your sexual interests. Yeah. I'm fairly out, but still, I don't necessarily want the whole world to know. Yeah. So I actually, yeah. so, so uh, I would, I would encourage <laughs> you to out him, but it is ultimately your decision to make. Yeah. I gotta be, gotta be safe. Right. You gotta be Careful. safe. There are risks here for you personally around your own safety, which if balanced with your totally legitimate concern for your own safety, is your concern for other women that he may take advantage of, including other women in his bananas congregation who believe the bananas yeah. things that he says. Ugh, yeah. It's such a horrible position to be in. I don't envy you the decision that you've got to make in your shoes. I've already told you what I would do. I would write to the church elders, the accountability committee, the board, demand satisfaction and demand to know how yeah. they're going to handle this and yeah. not be at my own apartment for a couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a scary thought. <laughs> you know, you also have the option of doing it in a year. Yeah. I'm moving to LA in a year. If you're oh. moving away, you're getting a new job. Oh. He's not going to know where you are. And you know, that can be mm -hmm. the, the, step, the step you take for your own personal safety. That right now he knows where you are. Right now it's that's, maybe too dangerous. Yeah. You know, if it's a kind of Trump-loving yeah. church, that's a gun-loving church. And oh. a year from now, you can do it. You can protect other women from 12 months out onward instead of risking yeah. potentially your life taking these steps right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. I like that idea. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to go idea. with. So you're going to call us back in 12 <laughs> months. After you live in L.A., you're going to call us back and let us know how it went. Okay, I will. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Talk to you soon. Or talk to you in a year. We're going we're gonna to call you back if you don't, we don't hear from you. Okay. Okay, deal. <laughs> Bye. Hey, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm calling from uh, L.A. I'm a late 20s gay guy. And I have a dating question for you. So I've sort of hit a pattern of sort of getting to know guys and when a topic of sort of coming out and how it happened and when it happened comes along, I answer honestly, oh, it came out within a few, a few years ago. It went like this. My parents were like that. You know, pretty normal conversation. But every time I have their conversation, it's met with the sort of, whoa, uh, that's so recent, which I guess I can understand, but at the same time, that's also when the guys sort of pull away, sort of, you know, arms reach, and it becomes kind of clear they don't want to, quote-unquote, take a risk on a guy who's, I guess, recently out of the closet. So my question to you is, what do I do with that? I feel like I have a couple of options. 
I can one, just sort of wait it out. In a few years or five years or 10 years, coming out of my 20s won't be a big deal, right? And I can date then. Or I could just lie and fudge numbers a bit. Oh, I came out several years ago or seven years ago, which is icky, I guess, but it feels almost less icky than, oh, being sort of turned down at face value because, well, I guess I seem like a great guy on the surface and how are you so single? Oh, Eve went out too recently, uh, not going to work. So, Dan, I was just wondering what your take on that is. Do I just wait? Do I tell a white lie? Do I avoid a subject at all costs? Help me. When someone comes out, when a gay person or a lesbian comes out, in some ways their kind of emotional life is set back to age 13 because we, when we come out, begin to date. Our straight peers, my straight siblings, they were dating and having boyfriends and girlfriends in middle school. And in a lot of ways, somebody who comes out at you know 25 or 35 or 45 has to learn all this shit about dating and about themselves you know, in middle age or in their mid-20s that their straight peers, straight family members, most of them, not all of them, some straight people don't date in adolescence, but most of them learned and learned through trial and error when they were 14, 15, 16 years old when the stakes were lower because marriage wasn't on the table and kids weren't on the table and people didn't have apartments and credit cards and other things available to them to help them get into all sorts of relationship trouble. So these guys who bump on the fact that you have only been out for a couple of years, that's not an entirely irrational prejudice. Sorry, I'm just going to throw that on the table, that they may detect in you an immaturity. And the news that you've only been out for a couple of years may confirm this sense that they've already had, that you're not quite ready for a relationship, that you're still learning who you are. And maybe they're at a point, having been out for a decade or more, where they know who they are and they know what they want and they want to date someone and invest their emotional energy in someone who's in roughly the same place, roughly at the same emotional and social age that they are. I don't think that you should lie, though. I think you should keep telling the truth. And the guys that this is a deal breaker for, that you've only been out for a couple of years, who bolt or ghost on you, good fucking riddance. Eventually, you're going to tell a guy who it's not going to matter to him that you've only been out for a couple of years, or he's going to be willing to take the risk for you because he likes you so much and he has gotten to know you well enough that he senses a fundamental bedrock maturity in you that is belied by how recently you came out and, and compensates for how recently you came out. For someone to be in that place where they can see a, a fundamental maturity that may be at odds or in conflict with how recently you came out, you might want to let guys get to know you a little bit better before you have the when did you come out conversation. That is a convo that a lot of gay men have early in relationships. It's something we all share. It's our hero's journey. It's the one thing that all out gay people have in common, that we had to look mom and dad in the eye and tell them after we finally looked ourselves in the eye and told ourselves this truth. And that's a searing experience. And for many of us, it's a crucible in which we are tested. And getting a sense for when and how someone came out and how it was received and how they did it, that's a touchstone for a lot of guys. I think that it is possible to delay having that conversation. 
you don't want to do it in a suspicious way. I'm not, I don't want to talk about that right now because that is going to throw a guy because it's usually something gay people are really comfortable talking about. But you can just sidestep the conversation. If you've been initiating this conversation, how long you've been out? When did you come out? I only came out two years ago. Stop initiating this conversation. But when it comes up, answer truthfully. The guys who can't deal will go. The guy who can, he'll stick around. That's the guy that you want to date. Hi, Dan. I'm a 42-year-old straight female from South Florida. I've had an issue for many years, and I'm hoping you can give me some advice. Uh, Backstory here, I was molested at a young age by a family member and was overly curious and confused about sex uh, for years after that. There was also some physical and verbal abuse at home. And to top it all off, I became obese, weighing about 250 pounds for most of my teenage years. At age 17, I left the house and began to work on myself. I lost 100 pounds. I put myself through school. Eventually, I married a man that also became abusive financially, sexually, physically, verbally. I had a son with him. I did get out of that marriage and have been able to keep my heart and my soul intact. I'm successful. I'm loving. I consider myself beautiful. I'm happy. Two years ago, I met an amazing man who now lives with me and my son. We have an incredible friendship, a wonderful partnership, and I absolutely love being intimate with him. So here's my issue. I've never been able to have an orgasm with any partner, with the exception of one of a one-time occurrence with an ex-boyfriend. During sex, I find myself worried about my loose skin. I'm just not able to let go. I'm just not able to set myself free. I can make myself orgasm, but I just yearn to share that feeling with my partner. How do I stop my mind from wandering into dark places? My pussy drips from my partner. My brain holds everything back. How do I let go? How can I set myself free? You have overcome so much in your life. Your strength and your resilience are so inspiring. Listening to you unpack everything that you've faced all of the uh, the abuse that you've faced and that you've overcome and you have this sense of self and self-confidence and self-possession that is a, a testament to to you and and what you and how you were able to come through for yourself and the people in your life that I'm sure that you relied on during the tough times who came through for you they contributed to that but you built you and I'm really inspired and was delighted when we got to the end of the call and your question was so not tame, but not what I expected. Your problem, the, the issue that you face right now, the, the question that you have for me is one that we've addressed many times with others uh, on the show, mostly women who don't have your history of abuse and don't have the, the challenges, haven't faced the challenges that you've faced and overcome. And my advice for you is going to be very similar to my advice for them. If you can, your partner turns you on. You say your pussy drips for him and you are able to climax. 
You're able to let go and climax when you masturbate. And so you should and you can bring those two things together. And it's kind of a step-by-step approach. And I'm going to walk you through it. I've walked other women through it. If you've been a long time listening to the show, maybe you've heard this advice before. This works. I've gotten calls and letters from people who've done this and it's actually helped. And it's, it's worked for them. And I just want to give it to you. You can come when you masturbate. Masturbate with the partner who makes your pussy drip in the house. Not in the room. But in the house, doors closed, you are masturbating. He's leaving you alone. But he is going to be present in your mind because he is in the house and he knows that you're masturbating. And then you masturbate with him outside the door. And then you masturbate with him in the room. But you're positioned in a way where you're not looking at him, but he can look at you. And if it helps you to relax, to not be looked at, put a blindfold on him. Just roll up a long sock or a towel or a bandana and blindfold him, but let him listen. And then masturbate with him in the bed next to you. Masturbate with him holding you. And then allow him to assist you as you masturbate. And hopefully you can take the blindfold off at some point and allow him to watch as you masturbate, as you bring yourself to those plateaus, as you bring yourself to that point of orgasmic inevitability where you are going to come even if mom and 10 nuns walk into the room, you're going to come and there's nothing that anyone can do to stop the orgasm from crashing over you. Let him see what that looks like. And then put the vibrator in his hands. Then take his hands in your hands and guide them and stimulate yourself with his hands in the way that you stimulate yourself when you're alone that works for you. And if you need a vibrator to come when you're alone, you might need that vibrator to come during partnered sex and you should incorporate it. And if he loves you the way that it sounds like he does, he should embrace whatever it takes to get you off. And there are some women who it takes a vibrator and they're never going to come without a vibrator. And the sensible, secure, loving dude's response to that is he picks up the vibrator and he doesn't tell himself, I didn't make her come because he had to use a vibrator. Just like I like to say, somebody built a house with a hammer. You don't say you didn't build that. The hammer built it. You use the tools that you need to use to build the thing that you want to live in. And I'm confident he wants to live in your orgasms when they crash over you. And you can get there. And you can sever your problem. And this, you know, maybe your problem is related to the abuse that you've suffered over the course of your life. But you can tell yourself it's not. You can play a mind trick on yourself where you say a lot of women have this same problem I have, women without my history of abuse. And you can cut the link, cut the association just by deciding to cut it and faking it till you make it between your problem and your history. Just by telling yourself other women have the same problem. They don't have my history. These things might not be related, so I'm just going to go with they are not related. And if you can do that, if you can play that mind trick on yourself – then when you're masturbating with him in the house, at the door, in the room, in the bed, holding you, helping you, you won't dwell on or be thrown back into thoughts about the abuse you've suffered. If you can sever it, and you can, that is a decision you can make. You can reason with your irrational mind and say, I'm not going to let you go there because there's no proof that this is associated and I'm just going to go with not associated. Good luck and thank you for calling and give us a call back. Let us know when you get there. I'm confident you can. Hi, Dan. My wife and I just recently, a couple of days ago, had our first MFM threesome. It was great. My wife really loved it. It was you know, two guys all about her. 
afterwards. She felt almost giddy as if she described it as if she was stoned, even though, you know, we did this bone sober and she hasn't smoked marijuana in, you know, almost 10 years. So, but, uh, <laughs> you know, at first I just wrote it off as it, you know, being, you know, really, really good fucking. It was, you know, basically a three hour fuck fest and it was all about her and, you know, minus a, few breaks for hydration and use the restroom it was pretty pretty solid just you know three three and a half hours straight but she still felt this way the next day at work which you know she felt kind of odd about it wasn't wasn't as bad but she still felt you know giddy and euphoric and a little fuzzy headed and you know she came home and did a cursory google search try to figure out if there's a term for this or if you know this situation that happened a lot or, you know, whatnot. And, uh, the closest thing she could find was uh, subspace, but, uh, you know, obviously this wasn't a BDSM thing. This was just, you know, good old raw fucking, but she was just wondering. And I was wondering as well, is if there's a term for this, if it's common or, you know, what the deal is. Afterglow. Afterglow can last for five or 10 minutes. Afterglow, if you've really stepped outside your comfort zones and you've gone for it and had a crazy, fun, exciting, successful sexual adventure, that afterglow where you almost have to sort of reconceive of yourself, uh, who you are sexually, what your relationship means and, and what's possible in your relationship to be wrestling with all of that and, and embracing all of that and, and to be excited about all of that. The afterglow can last for weeks, months, years afterglow. So that's the term I would apply to what your wife is going through, enjoying reeling from right now it is a serious case of reassessing herself and your relationship and what it means in a positive way it is a serious serious and intense case of mega afterglow hi dan i was on pornhub and i saw tribbing t-r-i-b-b-i-n-g urban dictionary did not come up with anything is this a thing what is this thing please explain Apparently, I'm not a cool kid that's up with the lingo. You must be using Bing or Ask Jeeves. Tribbing, UrbanDictionary.com, refers to scissoring, which is when two women rub their vulvas and clitorises together as a form of non-penetrative sex. From tribidism, which refers to lesbianism, derived also from the Greek tribos, a lesbian, and tribo, which is the verb to rub. It's right there in Urban Dictionary. Happy to Google that for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual, pansexual Latino that moved from the Midwest to Austin, Texas. And the reason I'm calling is that I have like a huge anxiety problem when it comes to uh, sex, specifically uh, penetration, both giving and receiving. The last time I bought them was six years ago, and the last time I topped was uh, about two to three. I don't know why when it comes to penetration, my anxiety kicks in and I get myself into my head. Sadly, it's not the right head. And when it comes to bottoming, I fear that like I'm not clean enough. While for topping, I get into my head and my arousal starts going down. I did just buy myself a uh, vibrator to kind of get in touch with my inner bottom. And I was thinking to also look into the cock range to kind of keep the circulation going. But I was wondering what were your thoughts or uh, suggestions that you had um, to kind of get out of get out of my top head to be able to focus on my bottom. 
of course, this is poop anxiety. This is poop shame. This is worrying about shit, getting shit on your dick, getting shit on somebody else's dick. And you can control for that. You can get a shower shot douche kit for the bathroom. You can get a douche bulb. And what you do is you douche yourself. You, you introduce water into your rectal cavity and you expel it until it's running clean. And then you really won't have to worry uh, about a little poop. You don't say whether you feel there's anything missing in your sex life. You can be an authentic, pan, bi, Latino, sexually active guy without having to have anal sex. Lots of gay and bi men never have anal sex. The stat that gets kicked around based on just a couple of studies is roughly 25 to 30 percent of gay men never have anal sex. It's mutual masturbation. It's oral. Some, it's frottage, where they do penetrative sex of a sort. Instead of going inside the butt, they go between the cheeks and up and down the cleft in your ass rather than up your ass and through your sphincter or between the legs, between the thighs. And you can clamp your thighs around someone's dick and lube up your taint and the tops of your thighs. And it can feel very much like penetrative sex. And you can get off that way without then having to worry about poop. So if you didn't have time to, to douche and you wanted to bottom for someone, that's an option where you can do frottage, where you can clamp your thighs around someone's dick or have them clamp their thighs around your dick and rub against their taint until you get off. But again, if anal isn't an interest, you don't have to do it. If it is and you're just worried about poop, you can control for that. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk with Dr. Lori Brodo, frequent guest on the Savage Lovecast, professor at University of British Columbia, and registered psychologist with expertise in sexual health. She's got a new book out that we're going to talk about, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Hey, Dr. Brodo, how are you? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. So let's define a couple of terms really quickly. What do you mean by mindfulness and what do you mean by better sex? Okay. So mindfulness really boils down to paying attention in the present moment and non-judgmentally. That's really kind of stripped away from, from all of the jargon. So basically, it's about noticing what's happening in the moment. Um, and in, when we do that, we do so in a way that we're kind to ourselves, we're compassionate to ourselves, we're not judging ourselves for how we're paying attention. So it has long roots in Eastern meditation, uh, but really kind of secular practice of mindfulness is just that, paying attention in the present moment. Um, and, you know, the reference to better sex really comes from the finding and research and repeated findings and research across different countries, across different cultures, that lots of people experience sexual concerns and are, are frankly just unhappy or dissatisfied with their sexuality, with low desire being probably the most common complaints that we see both in women and in men. And so the book is really about, you know, how do we how do we kind of cultivate a better experience of sex so that it becomes more satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, th th that sounds easy, like pay attention uh, non-judgmentally, but it's very difficult for people to avoid judging themselves because there's so much stigma and shame and religious hangups that attach themselves to sex. What's the mindful strategy to release yourself from the stigma, the shame, and the religious hang-ups? Yeah, and and you know, just to just to kind of set the record straight at the outset, it's not a, just a simple matter of flicking a light switch and suddenly saying I'm kind to myself. I can relinquish myself from all of these hang-ups and from all of the myths and stereotypes that have you know that I've been exposed to since I was a child. 
But we also know that when we practice mindfulness, and, and I'll say more about practice in just a second what I mean by that, but when we practice it, we can actually start to experience sex a bit differently. And with time, as our, our, as our experience unfolds, that can actually change how we relate to sex. It can actually change how we come to terms with different myths or stereotypes that we've, we've been exposed to. So by practice, what I mean is, yeah, I do advocate some formal practice. So carving out some minutes every day, whether it's 10 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes, where you actually practice uh, a, a mindfulness scale. And there's different ways of doing that. You can follow an app. You can download some guided meditations on YouTube, or you can do it entirely on your own, unguided. That's kind of the formal practice. Um, and then from there, I, I really advocate kind of bringing that into your life and really importantly into your sex, whether it's sex on your own with masturbation, sex with a partner or sex with multiple partners. So by first kind of cultivating the skill, can we then bring that into our actual real life encounters? Okay. You argue in the book uh, that mindfulness can address and help ameliorate low sexual desire, uh, which plagues a lot of women. Um, female desire for their partners drops off more quickly than male desire for their partners in committed relationships. And there are a lot of couples out there in crisis because I don't want to, you know, paint with too broad a brush here, but mm-hmm. the, the complaint is usually that, that, that she has no libido. There are certainly, I certainly right. get letters and calls from, from guys uh, and women whose male partners have no libido. Um, but there's been an effort in the past to, medicalized this. There was the female Viagra that got rolled out pretty disastrously a few years ago, which was a daily pill that women were supposed to take that had all sorts of side effects that increased desire for sex by something within the margin of error, statistically insignificant uh, and was dangerous. Uh, But there's been this push from Big Pharma to try to find the female Viagra. They've made billions off of Mm -hmm. Viagra, Viagra, the male Viagra. Is mindfulness the female Viagra that we've been waiting for? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the, guy, yeah, the guys, the so, guys, the guys have desire, but they can't get it up. Yeah. And Viagra addresses right. that. And it's very different from women who don't have desire. It's not that women have desire and they're not self-lubricating. Right. They're not becoming aroused. Right. They're not getting an erection. Women get erections. They're, uh, they have erectile tissues too. So it's yeah. not a disconnect between desire and erection the way it is for guys with Viagra. Where does mindfulness come in here and how does it, how does it address uh, low desire in a way that these efforts to create and market and profit from female Viagra uh, haven't. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot packed in that question, Dan, but I'll try and um, unpack a little bit of it. And, you know, first of all, I think for, for your listeners to be really clear, the medication that is approved, it's, it's, it's been called the female Viagra, but it's really not. It's a brain drug. It was a failed antidepressant and it was, it's really intended to kind of um, uh, alter the relationships between different neurotransmitters in the brain. And as you pointed out, um, the effects are really, really marginal and the side effects are huge. And also not to mention it's totally contraindicated with alcohol. So women cannot be using alcohol at all while they're using this daily medication. Um, but that, that said, I think that the effort by the drug companies to really look at the brain um, and kind of get away from looking at, okay, well, what are the pills that are going to stimulate more blood flow in the body? 
oftentimes, in fact, I would say in the vast majority of times with low desire, it's not an issue of low blood flow in the body um, or some kind of physical um, difficulty or, or, or aberration in the body. It really does have to do with what's happening in the brain. So the effort to look at brain mechanisms is spot on. It just so happens that all the medications that have been tried to date, the approved one and the unapproved ones have have failed miserably to that. So I think to your question about, you know, is, is mindfulness it? And, and I um, unequivocally would say, yeah, I mean, think back to any sexual encounter that you've had in your life that you would describe as mind blowing or fantastic. Um, you, you can't describe that without saying, wow, I was totally there. I was so in sync. I was, you know, riding that wave and it's the language of mindfulness, right? So when we look at the encounters that go really well, they kind of have this in this mindfulness component inherently woven into them. When you ask people about their most mind-blowing sexual experiences, you often hear tales of a new partner, something that was yeah. exciting because it was risky. And there was this element yeah. of, of danger that got the yeah. adrenaline pumping and nothing puts you in the moment quite like adrenaline pumping. That's why people who have, you know, they're in car accidents. They talk about, you know, the, the accident felt like it took an hour. Like yeah. they watched it all unfold very slowly. And you kind of have that same response when you're really, you know, making yourself vulnerable with somebody new and low desire yeah. is a problem that when we hear about it tends to be occurring in long-term committed relationships. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the other thing that novelty brings, though, is is people do pay more attention. They're more there in novel encounters. So, yes, the body's important. Adrenaline, absolutely key. Um, but, I, I, again, I would argue that the brain is kind of functioning a little bit differently in those risky or novel encounters. So now, so what do we, how do we make these long-term and kind of routine and monotonous sexual encounters in a long-term relationship. How do we make them novel? Can mindfulness do that? And so, you know, one of the things for, for those folks who do, who do a lot of practice in mindfulness is they say that actually when you pay attention, you start to notice that, that everything's, it's not quite the same as it was before. So even, even tasks that you engage in on a, on a routine or regular basis, there, there, there's subtle differences between them. And so that newness, that novelty, that nuance um, actually creates some novelty and excitement again when you pay attention. And again, that might sound like some jargon, but if you actually practice it mm -hmm. and you start to notice this, you, you can actually feel this firsthand. Would it be a part of a mindfulness practice to say to someone, our, our sex has become boring and routine because we love each other, we've been together a very long time and we've been having sex in the same place, in the same bed, in the same position – Tonight we're having sex on the roof. Tonight we're going to do something crazy <laughs> where the danger isn't, I don't know you well, you don't know me well, we're both taking a risk, making ourselves vulnerable uh, to and with each other. The, the danger is some outside force. The danger is the neighbors might call the cops. The danger is right. we're having right. sex in a, you know, a tiny bathroom in the back of a bar in, in a, standing up as opposed to in our bedroom in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah, love that. And and again, you'd be hard pressed to say that you're not fully there in the moment, fully paying attention while you're on the roof or while you're in that uh, while you're in that bathroom. So again, I'm coming back to, you know, one of the key ingredients there is is the is the paying attention and doing it non judgmentally. Right. I just wanted to throw it out there that, that mindfulness may bring you to some subtle difference that if, <laughs> if you pay close attention, you can perceive. Mindfulness can also be, uh, I, I think, uh, and you wrote the book, so tell me if I'm wrong. It can be about saying, <laughs> okay, we're going to do something not subtle. We're going to do something crazy and have an adventure yeah. together that gets the adrenaline pumping in a way that we used to make the adrenaline pump for each other, but can't yeah. anymore. You can't make the adrenaline pump for each other like you did when you first met. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I'm going to come back to the initial, you know, definition that I gave. Yes, it's paying attention, but it's also doing it non-judgmentally. So rather than saying to yourself, oh, that's never going to work because it's never worked before, or I'm not adventurous enough, or I'm not that kind of person, you say, you know what, I'm going to suspend all those beliefs about myself. And I'm just going to dive in and do this and just fully notice what happens in that moment. I'm going to kind of let go of my tendency to judge and label and just feel. If your partner says, I want to shit in your mouth, like I'm not the kind of person who does that. I think it's perfectly legitimate. If your partner wants to have a reasonable sexual adventure uh, that, you know, in has some small degree of risk, you can be the kind of yeah. person that does that if you decide to let yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, the hangups and, and all the stereotypes that, that society or parents or religion or even we have labeled ourselves with, um, we hold on to those. And sometimes we don't even know we're holding on to those. So we might label ourselves as, you know, I'm not that kind of a person or I'm, you know, too conservative for that or I'm not kinky enough to do that. It's amazing when you just make a deliberate effort to let go of labels and you just tune in and you kind of work on your intuition and on your body and on that connection. Um, wow, what a powerful way, way to feel things in a new way. It reminds me of something from my own past that I had to be slightly mindful of without the, without the help of your book uh, or your insights <laughs> uh, or really the, this framing. But sometimes we bargain and barter uh, with outside forces with, with, with the culture and the universe or religion or our family in this weird way. And I remember, and I, I wrote about this in one of my books, when I first came out, I didn't have anal sex because I wasn't going to be one of those gay guys. I wasn't mm-hmm. going to be one of those gay guys having that kind of sex that made straight people so uncomfortable mm-hmm. as if straight mm-hmm. people had any role to play in my <laughs> sex life, as if straight people were watching a live feed of what my boyfriend and I were doing. And it really took right. my first sort of serious relationship with a guy who really loved me and who I really loved to let go of performing my sex life to please my dead grandmother in heaven who was watching, which was <laughs> kind of what I think I might have been doing at the time. But I really was bargaining with right. the world yeah. and saying, well, like mm-hmm. you can like me, you make an exception for me as a gay man and like me because I'm not like those gay guys who make you uncomfortable. And often people do that in their, their sex lives. And you may be not focused on, yeah. and focused on pleasing your partner because you're trying to please some amorphous outside force that isn't in the room and will yeah. never know what you did. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and people don't question that again, because so much of this happens on a, you know, whether it's subconscious or unconscious level that, that we don't actually question it. And, and again, so when we actually start to, you know, and mindfulness as a tool can be a way to examine your own beliefs as well. Right. So rather than just kind of accepting things at face value, mindfulness can allow you to turn it, tune in and say, you know, what is this and why is this and why am I accepting this? Why can't I not just, you know, operate from intuition in a way that feels really good and right for me? So, um, you know, I think it's applications. Um, in the book, I write a lot about using mindfulness as a tool to tune into the body, but ultimately it has a, a, a much more kind of broad and profound effect even on changing the brain changing how we think, changing the structure and the function and the interconnections within the brain. You know, in partnered sex and long-term relationships, often both partners, they're having sex with each other, but they're running sort of a, a loop in their head to turn them on. Yeah. That there are fantasies yeah, sure. or memories yeah. that they're unspooling or others that they might be fantasizing about to, to help them get there, to, 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 to make yeah. this rote and routine sexual experience with a familiar 
long-term partner seem novel, they're inside their head and they're not present in the room and they're getting some sort of sensation and friction from their partner, but they're not connecting because they're running a tape. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I and I don't want to discount fantasy. I think fantasy can be an awesome and powerful and pleasurable tool um, when when used under your control and when you want to. But however, when you're um, kind of involuntarily disconnecting during sex, right, as a way to, to deliberately go somewhere else because you don't want to be there, either because it's non-consensual or you don't like your partner or it's become so boring and routine that you find that you have to disconnect and go elsewhere, that's when we have a problem. So, you know, it, it's, um, again, fantasy can be, can be great. It's not mindfulness, right? Fantasy mm-hmm. really is about going elsewhere, and mindfulness is about staying right there. Um, but I would worry about those couples in long-term relationships where they find that the only way for them to get uh, excited or aroused or have pleasure is when they have to exit from the current situation. There is a fix for that. You know, if it's, a, if it's not a high-stress, high-conflict relationship, if there's nothing coercive or non-consensual going on, and you both know the other is fantasizing to yeah. to start to speak the fantasies aloud to share them if you can commit to being non-judgmental and kind of improv about it where in improv yeah. you never say no right you say yes yeah. and and you can yeah. redirect a fantasy if somebody's unspooling a fantasy and it's not quite to your taste or it's kind of putting you off you can yes and mm-hmm. it in a direction that it pleases you and you can you know, create a story together and a fantasy together. And then what was internal and isolating you both in the moment, which is either of you or both of you, you know, unspooling that tape loop in your head that gets you off can become a shared activity. So you don't have to like let go or get rid of fantasies, but you can make them something that you guys explore and articulate and unpack together. Totally, totally agree with you. And then as you're sharing said fantasy, you tune in. How does it feel? Wow, it feels good. You know, let's do this more often. That's that that's sort of uh, an encounter. But it, but you know, just to get to that point of even opening up and disclosing to say a long term partner partner that you know what I've been fantasizing for the last many many years while we're having sex. Um, there can be a lot of guilt and shame around that. Um, but I I always encourage partners to consider working through that because if they can get to the other side, they can actually use that as a tool to feel pleasure again and really connect and introduce some novelty in a way that they haven't before. So yeah, definitely, definitely a fantasy work. Something to bear in mind when you're going to share fantasies, uh, both people, the person sharing, the person listening, is that sex negativity causes us, prompts us often to have a a knee-jerk negative reaction to something that's unfamiliar or that we hadn't thought of ourselves. And we kind of recoil mm-hmm. while we consider it. Like first we have to say, ew, yuck. And then we start to think about it. And it can be yeah. really helpful if before a fantasy is shared, you both commit to no ew, yucks, only right. oh, reallys or tell me more. <laughs> um, and, and, and so the person sharing doesn't feel shamed uh, by the, you know, the, the knee jerk sex negative reaction, which can really cause someone to withdraw. Also, the person who's sharing needs to know that a, a knee jerk sex negative reaction may come first. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the person yeah. isn't listening or potentially open to that fantasy. It's not them having that knee jerk negative reaction. It's the cultural script that that person felt they had to perform that, that yeah. prompted them to toss that out there first. So if you tell someone your fantasy and their first reaction is negative, don't be devastated because that may not be yeah. their authentic reaction. That may be the script. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm also an advocate of a toe in the water kind of effect. You share a little bit, you gauge the reaction, you talk about it, process it. And then maybe the next time you reveal a bit more and a little bit more over time. So rather than kind of a, a full blown revelation all at once, kind of ease into it, especially if you're concerned about feeling guilt or shame or eliciting a, a negative reaction in the other person. Okay, so one last question uh, to leave people who are now being mindful of mindfulness with something practical <laughs> that they can do. Uh, yeah. What's mindfulness for dummies? Like one, two, three, three things that you can do to put yourself in a more mindful place about your sex life. The first, let's go with two things. Because the first thing you should do is go get better sex through mindfulness, how women can cultivate desire yeah. <laughs> by Laurie A. Brodo, PhD, with a foreword by the terrific Emily Nagoski. Uh, what are two things that people can do in addition to getting your book to put them in that mindful place that they need to be in to experience desire in a really authentic way? Yeah. Okay. So today, choose one activity that's about five to 10 minutes long that you are going to deliberately pay attention to as you are doing it. So if it's standing in line, if it's walking to your car, if it's eating your meal, choose just one activity where during that activity, five to 10 minutes, your sole goal is to focus on exactly what you feel in your body, right? So you sort of scan your body and you notice and you, that's all you're doing. That's the sole purpose. The second thing is the next time that you're sexually active, however you define sexually active with one partner on your own, with multiple partners, um, tune in to those points of contact between fingers and bodies and modes and, and, and tongues and sounds and breaths. Um, and really kind of hyper-focus your attention on what that feels like and notice if there's any thoughts or judgments, but just let them go. Come, keep redirecting your attention back to those points of contact during sex. So one non-sex example, one sex example. Dr. Lori Brodo, professor at University of British Columbia and registered psychologist with expertise in sexual health. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Take care. Hey, Dan, I'm a 41-year-old single woman and professional, um, and I have a dilemma I'd love your help with. I've been doing online dating for years, and I've dated some really great guys, but I haven't found anything long-term. And this whole time, I've always wanted a family, um, and I kept putting off pursuing some options for being a single mom, thinking like kicking the can down a line and thinking that as I get older, hopefully I'll find someone, but here I am at 41, and I'm still single. And I still want a family. So I'm just now starting the process of adoption and um, looking into consultations with lawyers and such. Um, and I guess my question to you is, I want to keep dating um, because I do truly want a partner, but I'm not sure when and how to roll this out to men I'm dating. Um, even before I started the adoption process, I felt like admitting to a man early on in a relationship, not even a relationship, just dating, um, but I'm interested in the family is sort of like this blacklisted conversation for women my age and late 30s and now 41. Um, and it is a double standard because men say online all the time how they want a family and mention it on dates. But I feel like as a woman, if I bring it up, it's going to seem like I'm trying to settle down quickly and rush into a relationship, I guess. I just don't want to scare men off. Um, on the other hand, it is non-negotiable for me. I wouldn't want to be with anyone who would not want a family or to add to his existing family. And I also realize that, you know, this adoption process takes a really, it could really take a long time. So I could be dating someone for a year and it wouldn't matter because nothing would happen. Or I could be dating someone for a year and get lucky and have a baby. 
So I'm not really sure. What do you think? How should I roll this out? And at what point in the dating process do I let men know that this is something I'm actively pursuing? If you're actively pursuing adoption, tell them right away. Then qualify your expectations. The fear among some men, if they dated you, or women, if they dated you, if you're dating women, would be that they may feel not blackmailed emotionally, but cornered emotionally into making a premature commitment. If they're dating you and they're along for the ride as you go through the adoption process, which is a roller coaster emotionally, and I speak from personal experience, they may feel that that's risking being hustled into you know an, an intimacy and a connection and an investment that they're not ready to make because they don't know you that well. And if you can bracket that off and say, I'm aware of that dynamic, I'm aware of that fear. I'm doing an adoption. I am 41 years old. I'm ready to parent. I'm having a baby with or without you. And so you're not obligated to stay. So if we date during this process and I share with you about the process and you provide me with a little emotional support about the process, that does not obligate you to parent this child or commit to me before you're ready to make that commitment. But I will be going through this. So this is going to be something that is going to impact our conversations, impact the the time we share together, our intimacy. And if you're up for that, great. If you're not up for that, it was nice to meet you. Thanks for the coffee. Often if you give someone an out that allows them to go, their anxiety about feeling trapped if they date you or stick around for a little while lessens and it makes it possible for them to consider staying. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay male in San Francisco, and I'm wondering if I'm kind of strange. Um, I I had longer-term relationships when I was younger. I've had a two-year and and three-and-a-half-year-long relationship, Um, and I'm finding in dating more recently that um, there's a, a common occurring theme that Soon after dating, and and guys feel like they're kind of getting a little more serious, and we get to that quote-unquote boyfriend stage, that they feel like you should be talking and texting and seeing each other every single day, and I guess I just personally don't understand that, Um, and I guess that's where the question is, is does that make me weird? Am I the one out of the norm not feeling like there has to be this constant contact between me and this new person? I mean, I know you talk a lot about new relationship energy, and maybe that's kind of what's influencing them to feel like it needs to be this constant thing. And maybe I don't experience that as severely or strongly, I guess, as as other people do. But I guess Really, I'm wondering if that puts me outside the norm and I need to force myself to readjust. Um, In a really recent relationship, I did kind of consciously make more of an effort to try and, you know, like wake up and send a text in the morning and sometime in the afternoon. But I guess it's just not usually my priority because in my mind, it's a new relationship. It's not something rock solid yet. I don't want to necessarily make a daily sacrifice. Well, I wouldn't say sacrifice, but, you know, trying to take extra time out of the day in the middle of work or something to, oh, I've got to send that text message at 145 or I'm awful. But I don't know, help. Am I just, do I need to adjust my viewpoint or 
just helped. <laughs> you don't understand it, that need for constant contact, all those emails and texts over the course of the day. You don't personally need it. Can you provide it? Would you be willing to provide it for the right guy if that was his price of admission that you had to pay to be with him, that he needed that kind of affirmation and attention and those constant reminders that he does have a boyfriend out there in the world and his boyfriend exists and is thinking of him constantly and all the time. If you can come through with that for the right guy, then go for it. Are you normal? Nobody's normal when it comes to human sexuality, romantic relationships and everything else. Variance is the norm and you shouldn't concern yourself too much with what's normal. You should just be aware of you, who you are, what works for you, what you can provide, what, what you need and what you don't need. And part of being in a relationship is meeting that other person's reasonable needs. If somebody needs a text from you every 20 minutes, three texts an hour over the course of a day or multiple days, if you're apart, that's not a reasonable request. That's unreasonable. And you shouldn't date that guy. But if someone can listen to you, will you say, this isn't always in the forefront of my mind, texting and being in constant contact with my romantic partner that I'm you know, dating and I like and I look forward to seeing and I think of a lot, but I'm not always with the thumbs thinking of him. And he's willing to accept perhaps less contact, fewer texts than he might like. And you're willing to provide more than texts than you probably would of your own volition without a little prompting from him every once in a while. You can make it work. And that's what's important, making it work. That's what you should concern yourself with instead of what is or isn't normal and whether you fall short of standard operating procedures about the pace of text messages to a romantic partner. Can you work out a deal with the person you're seeing? Or can you find another guy like you? And they are out there, people who don't need 40 texts a day or three texts an hour from their boyfriend to remind them that their boyfriend exists and is thinking of them. Hey, what's going on, Dan? I'm calling in response to episode 616 and uh, the first woman who called in asking if she'd been raped and kind of what to do about it because that guy's still in her life. I think you're right about everything. Like The answer is yes, very much so. And one suggestion that I kind of want to throw out there for her or anyone else young or something like that is actually going to a, a self-defense class whether it be just women's self-defense or maybe the best might actually be Krav Maga, which is the Israeli army's kind of dirty street fighting. And I'm not saying she has to go and attack this guy, but realistically, even if she confronts him, if he's his brother's friend or whatever, she probably will see him again. And having been trained and knowing that she can kind of defend herself physically is going to add a new level of sort of confidence or safety or whatever and it's definitely worth maybe one out a week going to a Krav Maga Center just to build up that skill set so that you know in the back of your mind you can hurt that person. It's just one step that uh, a lot of women, I think, would probably benefit by taking, especially as long as there are uh, testosterone set up dick monsters in the world doing horrible things like this piece of shit sounds like. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the woman on episode 616 who dated men and said she likes dating, but after having sex with them, no longer likes them. The caller also asked, is there something wrong with me? You responded that she needs to address her sex negativity and phobia and work with a shrink. I think you're right, but I also think there may be another piece to the puzzle. Caller, in addition to being sex negative, you may also be gay. That was my experience. I thought I was straight until I was 48. That's when I discovered I had been so shut down about sex that I haven't even realized I was gay. 
I'm so much happier now. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in about the couple that had a threesome and the guest star possibly peed all over their bed. I'm calling because I am the guest star that they think peed all over their bed. I'm not sure if he called in before or after he texted me about the situation, but I thought we figured it all out and we're okay. I feel completely humiliated that he called into a podcast that he knows I listen to. So I'd like to share my side of the story. Yes, I did 100% have a UTI at the time. I get them pretty frequently. I was on pain medication for it, so I was still sore somewhat, but I was really into this couple, so I still wanted to hook up with them. I also have to point out that the female partner of this couple stated she also has a UTI and agreed to oral sex only and no penetration. Also, yes, I do have a king for peeing on people, but it's something I've only ever done twice in my life. And it was with partners that I'd been with for a while who I trusted, who after finding out about this kink, asked me to do it with them many times before I agreed to. It wasn't even me who initiated it because it's an extremely vulnerable thing to do with someone. I am not someone who gets off on tricking people. I had no intention of making them feel violated, especially since I'm the victim of sexual assault myself and ended up suicidal after work because of it. I would never intentionally make someone feel that way even if it did get me off in some twisted way. As far as the fluids go, I would be extremely surprised if I peed. Because of the medication I was on, the pain medication, my urine was bright orange, and it would have been unmistakable all over their sheets. When he texted me about it, he told me the fluid was yellow and smelled like pee. I didn't inspect the bed afterwards, so I can't say if he was mistaken, but I wiped myself off afterwards, and it was clear. And then I went to the bathroom afterwards and emptied my bladder, and there was a lot of pee in there, so I don't think any of it ended up on the bed. Perhaps the pain medication stained my vaginal fluid yellow. I'm not really sure, but I know a side effect of it can be that it can stain contact lenses or stool yellow or orange, so maybe have that sort of effect. I have no explanation for the smell, but I think he would have smelled it while he was going down on me and while we were cuddling on this apparently massive puddle of fluid. I'm thinking I just squirted, which is a newish thing for me over the last year. Many times I freaked out about it when it happens. It's happened at my own apartment, and I've inspected the sheets thoroughly, and it's always clear and odorless. The actual sensation of peeing feels completely different than what happened that night. I don't know much about squirting, but I'm pretty sure I didn't pee, so what else would it be? I never imagined that the story this night was going to end up on my favorite podcast, but I'm not the disgusting, horrible human being that he made me out to be. We've never gotten a call like that before. I want to thank you for calling in with your side of the story. And it's an important reminder that every week we hear the question. We're only hearing one side of the story. I try to bear that in mind when I'm giving advice, but I appreciate the anvil of a reminder that you dropped on us today, caller. Thank you. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also record a question on your own phone and email it to us as an MP3 at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Tickets are on sale now for Hump, my dirty little porn film festival. It's the 14th annual Hump, and it kicks off in San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, and Olympia in November. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get advanced tickets now. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Lori Brodo on Twitter at Dr. Lori Brodo. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.